Well, good morning, friends and family. If you will, grab your seat. Grab the teaching notes that should be on your seat. And I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bible, to turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You'll want to put a piece of paper or a finger or something there. Acts chapter 2. There. Once you're in Acts, then go with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We'll be in both of those places here in just a few minutes. First off, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. If we have not yet met, welcome to the Clear Creek family. Now, if this is your first time, we want you to know the reason that this church exists is very simply to reach the next person for Jesus. Because we believe every person is important and matters to God. And so every person should matter to you, to me, and to all of us. And so we are here to reach the next person for Jesus. Now, let's pray together and then we'll dive into today's teaching. Father, I thank you that in moments like these, we are able to experience your presence, that you meet us in these moments. And I don't know what everyone brought in with them in this room. Sometimes we'll hear people say, I pray that we, you know, just, just leave those problems at the door, leave that baggage. But Father, you never tell us to leave our baggage at the door. Instead, you say, bring it to me. Cast your cares on me. Why? Because you care for each of us. So I pray in these few minutes, the cares of our minds, the worries of our hearts, we would intentionally say, here they are, God. They're all yours. May you meet us in this text. Holy Spirit, show us what we need to see. Jesus, make a way for us so that we can see who you are and be who you've called us to be. We now pray this in your perfect and powerful name. And all those who agreed said, amen, amen. Today we're in part six of our eight-part series called Practicing the Way. This has simply been a small journey through 15 spiritual practices that throughout the past almost 2,000 years of church history, these have been fundamental to helping people become more like Jesus Christ. Now, again, we say this every week, but if you're new, let me say it to you as well. If you try to follow Jesus, you will get very frustrated if all you do is try harder. But Jesus never calls you to try harder. Instead, he invites you to simply follow him, taking on his easy yoke. The yoke was the teaching that a rabbi would have, his way of doing life. And he says, take on my yoke for it is easy. It's not heavy. And so here's the key idea. The big idea for this entire series, it's simply this. You and I can effortlessly become like Jesus. How? By arranging our lives around the same activities that Jesus arranged his life around. What does that mean? Instead of just trying harder, we begin to just reorganize how we act, trying different practices and habits, and eventually it will almost like second nature simply pour from us these ways of living and being. And so we've been walking through these. There's two groups of spiritual practices. And by the way, this all comes from a beautiful little book. I want to give credit every week because it's been so valuable to my life. Written by a man named Dallas Willard. And it's called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And in it, he talks about these 15 practices. He goes at much deeper level and deeper and and, and greater lengths than what we can on Sunday morning. So I invite you to get the book. Give yourself a few reads through because it is dense, but it is worth it. And so he divides spiritual practices into two groups. He divides them into practices of abstinence, things that we do not do, and practices of engagement, practices that we work into or do. So for instance, practices of abstinence would include things like solitude. You are abstaining from being around people. 
Does that make sense? You are abstaining. Or from engagement, you are studying the Bible, meaning you are engaging with, working with, doing something. And all of these practices actually help us overcome certain temptations and sins. So if there's a particular sin or temptation that seems to just grab hold of your life, these practices can help. So today we're going to dive in to the ninth and tenth practices. And I want to begin with this question. Here's the question. Are you ready? What would you say if someone told you, you need to be more humble? By the way, don't raise your hand, but have you ever had someone suggest perhaps that you could do with a little bit of humility? Maybe you grew up in a family and you thought that you were the know-it-all and everyone wanted to remind you, you were not the know-it-all. Or maybe it was a relationship, or maybe it was a teacher, or maybe it was a coach, or maybe if you went into the military, I have friends who go into the military, they think they know everything. But guess what? Boot camp, basic training, it beats it out of them. They come out saying, I knew nothing, but now I know something. And so what would you do? And, And maybe a better question is, how do you even become humble? Have you ever thought about that? How do you do it? The problem with humility is when you try really, really, really hard to be humble is that if you start to become humble, then the very next thought you'll have is, look how great I am. I worked very hard and now I am humble. And guess what? Guess what? You are no longer humble. It's a joke among a lot of these spiritual teachers out there talking about spiritual formation. They say, hey, all you need to do is write a book on how to be humble and how you accomplished it in three easy steps. Humility is one of those things that we would all agree is important, and yet how do you become humble? Friends, one of the primary practices that engenders humility in the life of a believer is practice number nine. Practice number nine, which, once I get to my slide, is this. It's the practice of service. The practice of of service. What is service? I'm going to walk through this briefly, but Willard says this. In service, we engage, there's that word, we're doing something. We engage our time, abilities, and strength in the active promotion of the good of others and the cause of God in our world. Service is using your time, abilities, and strength to actively promote the good of others and the cause of God in our world. Now, Willard goes on to say, not every act that may be done as a discipline need be done as a discipline. Here's all that means. Is it good to, by the way, the answer is yes, church. The answer is yes. Okay. Is it good to serve church? Yes, Yes, absolutely. In fact, even if you did not grow spiritually from serving, would it still be valuable to serve other people? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there are times where you serve simply because it is a good thing to do. However, service as a discipline, meaning you say, there are areas in my life where I struggle with arrogance, self-promotion, envy, egotism, all about meism. When you find that in your life, then you may say, I will intentionally practice service to combat these areas in my life that are not becoming, nor are they like Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Everyone give me a little head nod, or I got to keep going over and over again. We don't want to do that. Okay, so why should we do this? In other words, here's what he says. Service, if you want to write this down, service frees us from resentment and enables us to enjoy our position. Service frees us from resentment 
and enables us to enjoy our position. Isn't it true that sometimes we look around and our culture cultivates discontentment in so many ways. You look around and you see someone else who has something more than you. Bigger house, nicer car, better looking spouse, better behaved children. And you get this sense of entitlement or resentment. And you can almost look at the position that you are in and go, doesn't God love me? Service frees us from resentment and enables us to enjoy our position. After all, a lot of us live with this I'll be happy when mindset. Why does so-and-so get all the credit? In a world where happiness is found in the next promotion and discontentment is the default position of life, service frees us from that. But number two, service also, along with silence, trains us against self-promotion. Service, along with silence, meaning you don't talk, you hold your tongue, you don't have to be the one to tell the story, talk about yourself, your promotion, your position, your prestige. But service along with silence helps to train us against self-promotion. By the way, this runs in the face of the influencer culture that we live in, doesn't it? Come on, everything you see on TV, everything you see on social media, it's all about me. Look at me, how great I am. This is a world that does not need more self-promotion. This is a world that needs more others' focus. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? And it is this practice of service where we say, you, not me. That helps train us in this. Now, here's the question. How can anyone and how in the world would anyone enjoy a low position? I mean, why in the world would anyone say, yeah, let, let me do it this way. If I were to title this series something, I would entitle this, seri- this message rather, Bowls and Coals. Bowls and Coals. So let's start with the bowls for just a moment here. When we think about service, I want you to think about a bowl. And in particular, there's this beautiful passage in John chapter 13. And I want to set the stage for you just to kind of set you in the moment. But there's this moment. Jesus Christ, God himself, has entered into the human story. He's lived roughly 33 years. That was a strange thing when I passed 33, eight years, nine years ago. But he is 33 years old. And he knows that his time is almost up. He's about to go to the cross and he gathers his friends together for one final meal called the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And there around the table, he does something that would have been unheard of, not because he is God, but because he was the leader in that room. Here's the cultural context. If you entered into someone's home, it was customary for them to offer a basin of water for you to wash your hands and your feet. Why? You walk around with sandals everywhere you go. Have you ever been on a dusty road wearing sandals? Gets a little janky, doesn't it? Now add to it, you're on a dusty road and there are animals everywhere. We're not going to describe what might be on the road because of the animals, but you can guess, can't you? Mm. And so you enter into someone's house and they offer you something to wash your hands and your feet. It is a symbol of hospitality. It's a symbol of we welcome you in. But the great person in the house would not be the one to get down and do the washing. Oh, no, no. That was the job of the lowest of the low slaves in the family or a servant in the family. Jesus looks around at his followers and every one of them is jockeying for position, trying to sit near the head of the table. Not one of them is about to wash the other's feet. But Jesus, understanding this principle of service, does something extraordinary. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, friends, with that statement, the next word I expect would be something like, but. He is God, he is big, he is great, but he does something lowly. He is infinite, he is powerful, he is the one on top, but he still humbles himself. Is that the very next word, church? Is the word next to it, but. What's the next word? Do you notice the significance of that? He is the infinite, almighty God, maker of heaven and earth. So he does this. He understands something that the created, that Josh forgets. It is not the great and powerful who come to be served. It is the great and powerful who understand they have been given the position of power to serve others. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, into a bowl and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jump down to verse 13. It says, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, friend, are you a Christian? If you are, he is your Lord. He is your teacher, just like he is my Lord and my teacher, just like he was for those 12. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Who in here wants to be blessed? Who in here would like to have a life that is marked by blessing? Jesus tells us the golden ticket to blessing is service. Is it possible the reason so many in the Lord's church do not experience the blessing of God is because we have simply avoided what Christ did and that's serving. And yet he invites us into this beautiful thing, not simply for the benefit of others, but for the blessing that we receive in the process. I love what Willard says. He says, God has yet to bless anyone except where they are. See, a lot of us think, oh, once I get the promotion, once I get the position, then I will be blessed. Oh, no, no, no. Blessing comes wherever you are, saying in this moment, whether in high estate or lowly, God has a blessing for me. And that blessing is often found through the practice of service. In fact, this is what Jesus understood so well when he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So how do we do this? Three things. Let me jot this down very quickly. If you want to practice just in a very small way over the next week, this act of service, here's a few things. Number one, let me encourage you to look around at what needs to be done that no one else is doing and key words, do it. Dishes in the sink, do it. Clothes need to be washed, wash them. Leaves need to be raked, rake them. Look around what needs to be done and do it. There's this wonderful little story. That was a movie that came out a number of years ago. By the way, do you guys remember the movie Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray? Anyone else? How many of you actually saw the movie and haven't just heard about it? Anyone else seen the movie? Okay, good, you're, you're my people. So Bill Murray plays a character who's a real jerk at the beginning of the movie. He's very arrogant, proud. Everyone's there to serve him. 
But something happens on Groundhog's Day. Side note, by the way, there are very few movies about Groundhog's Day. Have you noticed this? Not a lot of them out there. I heard one preacher talking about this and he made the comment. He said that one of his kids, they had three kids. One of their kids was born on Groundhog's Day. And he looked to his wife when their child was born. And he said, hey, great news. If our child comes out and sees his shadow, he's going to go back up in there for six weeks. He thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny. I digress. In the movie, Groundhog's Day, what happens? Bill Murray is a jerk. He's not a very nice guy. But then he gets stuck into this recursive day. Every day is Groundhog's Day. He gets up, it's Groundhog's Day. He goes through his day. When he goes to sleep, the day's events are erased and start all over again. And so when he realizes he's stuck, he thinks, I'm just going to live for myself. And so he does. He eats what he wants, drinks what he wants, does what he wants. He harasses people after all. They won't remember the next day. But after a while, he runs into despair, as is the case for all of us. Selfish lives lead to despair. And he begins to be In the terms of the movie, changed, transformed. He finds salvation through the most unlikely of things, selflessness, serving. And eventually he begins to do things that shock those who knew him. He brings coffee and danishes to his his crew. A man who's begging on the side of the street, he gives some money. A woman who is driving her car and has a flat, he helps her change the flat. There's a man who's choking to death, so he goes over, gives him a Heimlich. And it's a great scene because he knows what's gonna happen. He's seen it happen for multiple days in a row. So he sees the guy choking, he goes, the thing pops out, he like catches it. I mean, it is awesome. But he goes one to the next to the next and he finds a way to serve. Friends, even our culture through media sees the truth that service changes lives. Look around. See what others aren't doing and just do it. Number two, if you want to practice this today, the next time you get, this is a key word, interrupted. Anyone else not like getting interrupted? Don't get upset. Did you know that roughly one half of all of Jesus's miracles happened because he got interrupted? A blind man shows up, a leper shows up, a woman cries out, someone touches him. Jesus changed lives in the interruptions and often my life is not changed because I'm frustrated by the interruptions. Service often follows the interruption. And number three, find an opportunity to simply serve someone today. Just find someone who needs something. Bring them a cup of coffee. Put an arm around them and listen. Ask them how you can help. Find someone who may be struggling and serve them in some way. In so doing, you will find life and life abundantly. This is what Jesus teaches us. Now, if you do this, you are well on your way to practice number 10. We're gonna move quick through this. But I wanna show you this because the magic of life, the deep glue that holds relationships together, the foundation of it all is serving. So if you are someone who says, not my will be done, but I'm gonna be a servant to others, then this next one is, you're all ready for, and it is simply this. Practice number 10 is fellowship. Everyone say fellowship. Now that word is an old, old word, and it often has become cliche because we hear it so often. But I want us to see it more freshly this morning. So what is fellowship? And by the way, okay, you gotta pay attention to this part because fellowship is not what most of us think it is. It's in fact very different. This is what Willard says, and this is the historic definition of of fellowship. In fellowship, we engage in common activities of, here we go, worship, study, prayer, celebration, and service with other disciples. Do you get that? 
Biblical fellowship is not simply saying, let's spend time together. Biblical fellowship is saying, let's practice the way of Jesus together. So it's possible to be friends with Christians and never have Christian fellowship with them. Christian fellowship happens when we intentionally say, we are going to do life together. We're not simply going to talk about the game, although that's fun. We're not simply going to go to this uh, vacation, although that's fun. We are going to do things that engender a heart for God and deepen our love for him. This has been at the center of Christian tradition and faith from the very beginning. You remember in Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Acts chapter 2. There's this moment at the end of Jesus' life, he has been crucified, he's raised from the dead. He commissions his followers to go and share the good news wherever they go. And the first place they get to do that is in their home city of Jerusalem. A crowd shows up, Peter preaches, 3,000 are saved. And on the day that the church officially begins, we read these words. The church, the Christians devoted themselves, meaning they loved, they put at the center of their life, the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. If we had time, we'd talk about the brilliance of that Greek word koinonia. We don't have time, but here's what you need to know. It is doing life together. It is doing things that draw you closer to Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship, by the way, if you're sitting here shoulder to shoulder, but you never talk to someone, we may have worship, but we have not fellowship today. Fellowship is more than simply being around each other. It is getting into one another's lives. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I love what Willard says. He goes on. Personal, personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his great presence much better than scattered individuals. Here's all that means. We are better together. You will see God and shades of him in others that you will never find on your own. So if the last one is to remind us about bowls, then this one I would say should remind us of coals. By the way, anyone like a bonfire? Anyone this time of year? Last night we were sitting down to dinner and over my shoulder... Our backyard butts up against another neighbor's backyard, and they had a granddaddy bonfire. You know what I'm talking about. This thing was about eight feet high with the flames. It was not a small fire. My wife sees it, and we're all going, I hope that doesn't get the fence. And, you know, we're kind of stressing about it. But it's beautiful fire. Until this morning, about 4 a.m., when my wife is walking around our bedroom, I wake up. I'm like, what's going on? She says, I smell smoke. I thought, oh no, my house is on fire. So I went, I crawled under the house. We looked around, it's fine. But the whole neighborhood smells like a bonfire because of this great big bonfire. So they're pretty to see. They stink though, okay? That's the moral of that story. Here's what I want you to know though. With a bonfire, with a bonfire. Have you noticed the flame gets higher and hotter the more fuel gathers together, right? So like if you want a really big bonfire, You don't just get a few leaves and a few twigs. No, you get some logs. You bring over a few more. You add add fuel. Maybe it's coal. Maybe it's wood. But you bring more to it, and it gets bigger and bigger. But quick question. What happens when you take one of those embers out of the fire and set it off by itself? It quickly cools, doesn't it? Friends, you are a little briquette. You are a little piece of coal. I'm a little piece of coal. We are better 
together, we experience the fullness of God when we're in close proximity to the people of God. We grow more cold. We grow cooler faster when we are alone than when we are together. Are you kind of getting this, friends? If you look around at your life and say, why do I have no love for God? Why do I feel cold towards God? The next question to ask is, do I have a community? Not just people I get together with. Do I have a group of believers who speak to me about the things of God, with whom I pray and share scripture and talk about what God is doing and celebrate the good things of life, eating great meals together, drinking great drink together, going on trips together, but in doing those things, giving glory to God. And if you say, I don't have that, that may be why you feel cold. But good news, this is the church and we want you to be a part of the community. In fact, after service, if you want to know how to get into a community, we have Bible classes. That's a great place to start. Or if you want a small group, you find Evan Aldridge at the next step table. He'll help you get into a community. But this is one of the core practices. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I love Jesus. I don't like his church. I love Jesus. I'm saved, but I'm not a member of the church. Friends, hear me now. Scripture knows nothing of a Christian apart from the local church. You always see them together. So now he goes on. Fellowship is this thing that we do together. It may involve assembling ourselves together in a large group or meeting with only a few. Why would we want to do this? Like we just said, we experience more of God and we recognize his presence when we are together. We experience more of God and recognize his presence when we are together. I don't know why this is true, but I just know that this is true. This is the way God made things. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, talks about the power of relationship in his book, The Four Loves. Lewis was a part of this small group of men that they called themselves the Inklings. You say, why Inklings? Well, it's because they all were writers and you use ink when you write, correct? There you go. That's why. He writes about this time. He was in this group with a group of guys. One of those was J.R.R. Tolkien. He's the one who did the Lord of the Rings books. But he writes about the time that one of their friends died, someone who's in that group. His name was Charles. And he said something that I'd never noticed before, but is so profoundly true. I want to share this with you. Lewis writes, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. Haven't you noticed that, that you can say something to a friend and it gets one response, but another one of your friends says the exact same thing and you get a completely different response from this third friend. Have you noticed this? You feed off each other differently. Everyone pulls something unique out of the people around them. So when his friend Charles died, Lewis wrote, now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles kind of joke. Far from having more of Tolkien to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Tolkien here. Friends, you bring something beautiful to the community that you're in and you draw from those around you something that no one else can. It is as we are together in the body of Christ, a bunch of little briquettes, we come together and the flames for God grow deeper and stronger and more powerful. Now this word, fellowship, has become such a cliche I remember growing up in the church in Nashville and we had a fellowship hall. Did anyone else grow up in a church with a fellowship hall? Anyone else? 
Yeah, okay, so a fellowship hall. So that's the one place in the church you're supposed to do fellowship, right? And when we think of fellowship hall, what do we think of? Well, we think of eating, usually it's punch and cookies, or maybe it's a potluck, and almost always the potluck included things made out of mayonnaise. Have you noticed this? Almost everything at a church potluck, it's like the primary ingredients is mayonnaise with a little bit of cheese or a little bit of ham in it, it's something else. But fellowship is more than just a meal. It is saying, I want you to know me. I want to know you. And in the moments that we're together, we will bring God into it through prayer, through study, through worship, through celebration. In biblical fellowship, we are united in a great common cause. I mentioned the Lord of the Rings. And there's this great scene where they gather together and they make a decision to become a fellowship on this common cause this great adventure to overcome evil, to bring goodness and justice and mercy into a broken world. If there was ever a picture of what the church is for, it is to gather together, to share life together on this common cause, to bring glory to God, to invite him into every dark corner, to push out that which is wicked and evil and painful and broken, to comfort the hurting, to bind up the poor, to say to those who need help, There is a God who loves you, and we do this better when we are together. We are the fellowship, not of the ring. We are the fellowship of the king, and we gather together in these moments. And one of the ways, one of the ways that God grows us is through this beautiful thing. Now, a couple things. Fellowship is not simply hanging out. It is engaging in spiritual practices with other disciples. So, how do we do this? One thing and one thing only. Are you ready? (laughs) practice any of the spiritual disciplines with any other Christian. This week, just find someone. By the way, you want to practice fellowship and maybe you're an introvert, you're not really comfortable with this, that's great. If you have a texting app, you can do this. Text a friend a Bible verse. Text them a prayer. You have just practiced fellowship. Congratulations. You can start right there, but don't stop there. Friends, I, I don't know what you brought in with you this morning, But I want you to know something. One of the ways that God brings healing to the hurting, including us, is through his church, the body. I I don't want to see a body that simply gathers on Sunday in rows. We want to be a part of a church that doesn't simply gather in rows, but gathers throughout the week in circles. Because it's face to face that we get to know one another and we see the face of God more deeply. What would it look like if Jesus showed up to you this week? How would your life look different today? There's this beautiful thing in scripture that where the people of God go, they bring the presence of God with them. So that when you see the face of a brother or sister in Christ, if you look very closely, you will see the face of God for they bring with them the presence of God. If you want more of Jesus today, it may just be that practicing fellowship And service will show you the closeness and the nearness and beauty of God more. And if you don't like these, come back next week and we'll do a couple more. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for these few precious moments where we get to celebrate Jesus. I thank you that even before we knew how much we needed you, you came and you met us. And you didn't keep your fellowship simply to yourself, but you invited 12 followers to be close. And there in John 17, we're told that you pray not only for them, but you are praying then for the rest of the fellowship of your growing family throughout the centuries and around the world. 
I thank you that you've brought us in. And Lord, for anyone in here this morning who is not a part of your family, who is yet to confess their sin to you, repent, meaning turn away and enter into relationship with you, putting you on in baptism. Father, I pray that your fellowship, your presence would reach them today. May it even come through the presence of those around them in this room so that there will not be any person apart from the fellowship of God. We love you, dear Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. And all those who agreed said, amen. Let's stand.